Jesus was a man's man. Have you noticed? He wasn't politically correct. He turned over tables in the temple. He was a mixture of velvet and steel, as somebody wrote about Abraham Lincoln. And I pray that we can be the same as men of God. We should not be ashamed of being masculine. Now, there's going to be different styles in guys. I ride a motorcycle. I coach sports. Many people would look at me and say, I'm a man's man. I eat frozen yogurt. Doesn't that qualify you to be a man's man? <laughs> oh, it doesn't? <laughs> One of the things that the Lord did to me in the last several years is I volunteered to teach uh, Bible release time in an elementary school where under California state law, they allow you to go in an hour a week in a public school and teach a Sunday school type lesson. So we sponsored, we helped sponsor the ministry and I figured I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to go and teach little kids. And one of the first years I did it, God gave me 14 little girls, no boys in the class. So I would walk in there, they're like, Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael. I was like, oh Lord, what are you trying to do to me? I have three sons at home. I have no daughter. The dog is a girl. But other than that, <laughs> but the Lord's obviously working in all of our lives. And I just wanted to celebrate dads today. And, you know, I know that when I say that, uh, you may not have warm fuzzies about your father, but we do have a heavenly father that's the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. And if you've been around for a while, you know my story that my dad left very early and I never saw him again. But I learned how to be a man through other men in the church. And so keep your eye on other men. And if you're a young man right now and you need someone to mentor you, I would pray about that. And I would even not hesitate to approach a godly man that you know in this congregation that can help you answer some of those questions about what it means to be a man of God. Um, some years ago, I heard Dr. Dobson quote this song from Winona Judd. And many of the first weddings that I performed, I would quote this, and I think it's apropos for this morning. The song is called, Grandpa, Tell Me About the Good Old Days, and it goes this way. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Sometimes it feels like this world's gone crazy. And Grandpa, take me back to yesterday when the line between right and wrong didn't seem so hazy. Did lovers really fall in love to stay, stand beside each other, come what may? Was a promise really something people kept, not just something that they would say and then forget? Did families really bow their heads to pray? Daddies really never go away. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Grandpa, everything is changing fast. We call it progress, but I just don't know. And Grandpa, let's wander back into the past and paint me the picture of long ago. Did lovers really fall in love to stay? Stand beside each other, come what may. Was a promise really something people kept, not just something that they would say and forget? Did families really bow their heads to pray? Daddies really never go away? Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Tell me about the good old days. That was written by Jamie O'Hara, and I think it strikes a chord in all of us because we see a world that's gone crazy. We, we see, you know, what happened in Virginia with this man targeting lawmakers at a baseball field. And, you know, we continue to look at our world and we look at families and we look at the United States and we look at the foundations in many ways being eroded. Things that seemed 
so basic and so elementary are being questioned. And, I, I, and I'm telling you right now, and I've been saying this, I think, since 9-11, and I'll say it again. The healing remedy for America is going to be a spiritual revival. And until America decides that we're going to get back to the God of the Bible and back to our foundations, we're going to continue to see what we're seeing, which is an eroding away at the basic foundations of what God put in place. And one of the first things that he put in place, of course, is family. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The family is precious to God. And even that, in our culture, is being redefined. So we're going to have a, as it is on Father's Day and where we are in the Bible, we're going to have a message about bringing your faith home. We're going to talk about God's rule in relationships, because if your Christianity doesn't go home with you, it's not worth much, just to be quite candid with you. If you can't be a Christian at home, if you can't be a Christian where you live and breathe the most, then I'm, I'm going to be blunt, then you're a hypocrite. You've got to be able to bring your faith home. Colossians 3 verse 12 says these words. And so, Colossians 3 12 as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, Colossians 3.13, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, the first part of this passage in Colossians 3 is addressed to the church, and then we're going to bring it home to the family. But this verse is really a key for not only the congregation, but for the family. We need to be able to forgive each other. Marriages, I'll say this to you, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. I've read a good number of books on marriage. I've been married to my beautiful bride for 26 years. And I'll say this to you. Forgiveness will always move your marriage forward. Unforgiveness will always move your marriage backward. So if you're holding on to unforgiveness... You're just going to be in trouble. It says, just as the Lord forgave you, end of verse 13, so also should you. I'm not saying forgiveness is always easy, but it's just like love. It's a decision we need to make. Agape in the Bible is a decision you make. It's not if you feel like it, you forgive. It's really something we should do because we're commanded to. But we're good at complaining and we're good at holding on to our resentments. A man lay on his deathbed harassed by fear because he had harbored hatred against another. He sent for the individual whom he had a disagreement with for years before and he made overtures of peace to the man. The two of them shook hands in friendship. But as the visitor left the room, the sick man roused himself and said, Remember, if I get over this, our old quarrel stands. <laughs> if I'm dying, I forgive you. But if not, we'll just pick this up where we left off. That's sometimes how we act. Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Last Supper, and he became angry with a man and lashed out at him, even threatened him. Then he went back to his fresco and tried to paint the face of Jesus. He couldn't, for there was too much evil stirring inside of him. The lack of peace forced him to put down his brushes and go, brushes and go find the man. He asked the man for forgiveness. Only then did he have the inner calm needed 
to paint the face of the master. That's, that's where we're going to find our answers in the face of Jesus. When we're wrestling with stuff as to, can I forgive somebody of something? Can I put on a heart of compassion? Can I love my wife the way I'm supposed to? Can I parent the way I'm supposed to? Can I live out my faith at work with this difficult person? We'll find our answers in the face of Jesus. And Paul says, beyond all of this, all of these things, Colossians 3.14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This, there's an imperative thrust here in this language. It, it means keep putting on love over and over and over again. You must keep putting on love. And to put on love is to put on God. To put on love is to put on the Lord Jesus. It's not a love that you generate that's going to get you through. It's the love of God poured out, poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen. Romans 5.5. 5. It's a supernatural love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. These are where these things come from. And we could do all kinds of things, but if we don't love, 1 Corinthians 13 says we're nothing. And so we, we start actually in verse 15. That was a little backtracking, but Here's one of the things that we need to do if our faith is really going to become real in our families and in the church. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If you're a note taker, one of the things that Paul's going to tell us is we got to let some things happen. And what, the thing here in verse 15 is we need to let the peace of Christ rule. Where, where should it rule? In your heart. Whenever you see in your heart in the Bible, it's really the core of who you are. It's not your pumping organ that is an incredible creation of God. But it's in the core of who you are is where you need to let peace rule. In Greek, peace is irene. In Hebrew, it is shalom. And for the Hebrew mind, when you say shalom, it means total well-being. In fact, shalom, scholars would say shalom is what has happened to the universe because of the work of Jesus Christ. We now have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are well with him. There's no barrier between us and God because of the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that peace, that shalom, needs to rule in your heart. The word rule is where we get the idea of arbitrate. It was used in the ancient world of an umpire who would make decisions in the games. If you want your faith to really come home, you, let, you have to let the peace of Christ make the call. An umpire makes the call in heated decisions, right? It could be a close call at home plate, and the umpire's got to decide in a moment of time whether that person is out or safe. In the same way, we need to let the peace of Christ rule as an umpire in our hearts. We need to let it rule, let it arbitrate, let it render the verdict, let it be the decisive factor. This is more than in a situation we just say, hey, peace, man. Peace, dude. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the power of Almighty God coming in and making the call when everything in you wants to do the opposite. When everything in you wants the opposite of peace, and God says to you, peace, peace be still. Let me make the call here. Let me decide what's going to happen here. One of your greatest witnesses in the world is going to be if you react differently than the world. Amen? Instead of returning insult for insult, you don't. That's the model that Jesus gave us. And I know it's very hard in the moment when insults are forming in the back of your brain. 
on the 91 freeway or some person who just said something terrible to you and you just want to say, oh yeah, let me tell you something. (laughs) I've been holding on to stuff for years and it's coming out right now. (laughs) You feel good for about a second, right? Oh, I just told them. Oh, I gave them a business card to the church last week though. Hmm. The book of James says, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let it rule. Let it rule. Verse 15, take a look in your hearts. That's every heart. That's plural. Let it rule in your hearts. There are no exceptions. Let it rule in all of your hearts. Which indeed, notice, verse 15, to which indeed you were called, that word called, has the idea of God calling us to a banquet feast or calling us out of the world into the body. You were called in one body. You are the church, and we ought to be thankful people. Have you ever tried just to spend a week being more thankful? It's hard, isn't it? Especially if you've been in a mode of complaining. If you're a complainer and then you try to spend a week being thankful, it is such a challenge. You're like, oh, no, I mean, oh. you got to catch yourself so many times during the day. The verse says, look at the end of the verse. Some of you need to mark this. It just says, be thankful. Be a thankful person. Do you know what an attitude of gratitude starts to change in your own heart? When you start to give God thanks for things, and you start going through a list of all the blessings you have, man, it starts to do a a change in your heart. So let the peace of God rule instead of your iron fist. Amen. (laughs) Rather than letting the flesh rule, let God rule. The sense here is let the peace of Christ be an umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with how many? All people. Romans 14, 19 says, So let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. There's enough stress and problems in this life. We don't need more. We don't don't need to be creating drama when God calls us to peace. He himself, Ephesians 2, 14, is our peace. And we are to be thankful people. Look at Verse 16, here's another thing we need to let happen. Let the word of Christ, verse 16, richly dwell within you. This is how you can let the peace of Christ rule, is you let the word of Christ rule. Notice, there's two verses you need to put together. Let the peace of Christ, mark that, let the word of Christ. When the word of Christ is richly dwelling in you, the peace of Christ is bound to come out. Right? There is a link between the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. Have you noticed that when you're in your Bible and you're listening to sermons and you're spending time in worship, you react differently than when you're not? And if you haven't been in your Bible lately and you're not taking in the word of God, there's probably a one-to-one correspondence between how you're responding to people and how little the word of God's coming into you. Amen? That's why we need the Bible so desperately. Let the word of Christ richly, the idea here is extravagantly, and let it dwell within you. You could say again, let it be in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in your heart. Here's what happens. 
This sounds like technical language, but let's just bring it home. To let it dwell is a Greek word which means to live in, to be at home with. It has the idea of deep penetration and long contemplation. You might want to write that down if you're a note taker. Deep penetration and long contemplation. Sometimes when we're reading our Bible, it's like we just read so we can get enough done so we can tell somebody, hey, I read three chapters of my Bible today. You did? What'd you read? I don't know. <laughs> you might want to slow it down a little bit. This is not a race. This is not about telling your friends, hey, I read a book of the Bible today. What'd you read, Jude? Well, there's only one chapter in Jude, so that's not that great of an accomplishment. But here's the thing. When you're chewing on the word, when you're letting it go deep in you and thinking about it and contemplating it, then you're going to be more apt to let it be the, the person that you are. As a man thinks, so he what? He is. You can't be a Christian in the practical ways if you don't let Christ's word dwell in you deeply. If you take in everything but Christ's word, then it's going to be hard for you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Look at verse 16. With all wisdom, we, we know what that word means. Teaching, that probably has the idea of positive elements of the Christian faith. Admonishing one another, that has to do more with warning each other and making sure we're okay. And notice there's an addition here with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, many commentators have said we are getting in verses 15 and 16 a view into the priorities of the early church. The priorities of the early church were the word of Christ and singing songs to God. Because when you start singing to God, it does something to your heart. Some of you are a little bit stiff on the worship. When the music's going on, yeah. can we get this part over with or so get, get to the get to the Bible teaching? Right? And then for me, when I first came into the church, it was awfully strange because they spent like a half an hour singing, and I'm like, what is this about? I don't do this at any other part of my life. I don't get together with my friends on the golf course and say, hey, let's sing a tune together. What do you think? Never did that. Then you come into the church and they sing. And they don't just sing for five minutes. They sing for a half an hour. Some of you time your entrance into the church, just the tail end of the music, right? Because this whole thing is strange to you. Because you're more worried about what other people think than singing to God. The early church had two primary ways in which the heart connected to God and God permeated the heart. And it's through the word of Christ and through singing. And those are the two things that the devil wants to keep you away from. Because he knows that your heart changes in corporate worship. He knows that when the word of Christ dwells richly within you, you're going to be a different person. You may even start impacting others around you for the kingdom of God. You might even muster up the strength to give someone a Bible tract or say, hey, is there a way I can pray for you? You might end up just being the church in the world. Oh, the devil can't have that. He can't have you having a song in your heart and the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. 
So he tries to keep you away from these things. But this is what the church does. The record of Christian awakenings during the last 2,000 years shows that whenever the word is, of God is recovered, it is received with great joy, which is inevitably ex- expressed in song. The medieval Latin hymns cluster around the fresh days of the monastic movements. The Protestant Reformation brought a rebirth of music to the church. When we think of the Wesleyan revival, for example, we not only think of John Wesley, but his brother Charles, who has given us so many great hymns. The great harvest of souls here in our own country in the late 1960s and 70s brought a revival of Scripture singing. When the Word of God dwells richly within you, you want to sing with gratitude in your hearts to God. Are you a worshiper? Do you have a song in your heart? Are you excited about singing songs to God? That's who you're singing to, by the way. And when we sing these songs to God, we sometimes feel like when we sing it, it's a little less uh, obligatory than when we maybe speak it. So we say, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you everything. When you're singing it, it applies the same to God. But I just sang it. It was just a song that I sang. Wait a minute. (laughs) It's still important to God what we say in those songs. Notice that verses 15 and 16 both have the idea of thankfulness. Verse 15 says, be thankful. And then end of 16 says, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving, here it is for the third time, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I wonder if Paul heard something about the Colossian church that they weren't a very thankful bunch. I don't know. But three times in these verses, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. What do you think it takes to be thankful? What do you think the key is? Do you think just some people are more naturally thankful? Or do you think it's a decision that you have to make every day? I would say it's the latter. When you meet a thankful person, it's a decision that they've made years ago to give thanks for everything in their lives. And whatever you do in word, look at verse 17, or deed. Doesn't that cover everything? Anything you speak, anything you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's a practical way to think about this. Whatever you do in the following week, or maybe you should reflect on your last week, could you say, I just did that in the name of Jesus? Sometimes people think when you say the name of Jesus, it's just how you should tag your prayers. So, Lord, I'd, I need a new car. And you got to say it this way. In the name of Jesus. Well, that's really not what this verse is talking about. When you use the name of Jesus, you're saying in the authority, or you're saying this is what Jesus would do in this situation. Christian, if that's what you call yourself, the I-A-N at the end means a of the order of, or belonging to the party of Christ. So this week, if you fight with your sister, could you say, I did that in the name of Jesus? Or you cut off a person on the freeway. (laughs) Could you say, in the name of Jesus? How about a dishonest business practice? How about you're not treating your spouse the way you should Honey, I just wanted you to know, could you say that's in the name of Jesus? How many things should we be doing in the name of Jesus? Uh, Let's take another look, just in case we miss something. Whatever you do in word and deed, 
do how many things? All in the name of Jesus. Hey, I've got a challenge for you this week, and I'll challenge myself. Everything you do this coming week, ask yourself before you do it, could I do this in the name of Jesus? If you could, you're cool. If you can't, you might want to start rethinking how you live. Oh, I know this is in our kitchen. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> I know it's hard, but this is the Word of God, right? And it says, this is how we change. Now, verse 18 goes to take it home a little bit farther. It says, and don't get nervous because every group's going to be uh, addressed here. We're going to get wives. We're going to get husbands. We're going to get children. We're going to get pets. Just kidding. Pets are not mentioned here, but everything else is. The first is wives, verse 18, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, you might want to peek over your husband's Bible. He's probably got this verse highlighted. I'm not sure if he's shown it to you before, but <laughs> wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. This is not politically popular, but it is true. But the husband, ladies, is not your ultimate head. Jesus is your ultimate head. So what does it mean to submit to your husband? It means you would submit to him as unto the Lord. That is, if he's following the Lord and he's leading the family, then you are to submit to his leadership. The word hupatasso here has military ideas, but in a non-military use for be subject, it's a voluntary, voluntary attitude of giving in. Let me say that one, one more time for the ladies. It's a voluntary attitude of giving in. <laughs> I paused there for a reason. Putting oneself under, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. I know for some of you, your husbands following them is a risky venture. I understand. <laughs> but if he is doing his best to lead you towards Christ, follow him. That's your job. You're to submit to his leadership. That's fitting, as is fitting in the Lord. The idea is it's proper. It's right. It's the right thing to do. There is an order in the family, and the husband is the head. He's not the ultimate head. Christ is the ultimate head. And here's the qualification. If your husband tells you to sin, then you don't follow him. Because you have a greater head, and his name is Jesus, right? If your husband's leaving, leading you off the cliff, I would not follow him off the cliff. But if he's doing his best, ladies, I'm going to give you an insight about men. Men are very simple creatures, but one of the greatest things that you can do for a man is to celebrate his leadership and encourage it. If you discourage his leadership, he will shut down. I'm just giving you the facts. But if you encourage his leadership and you say, say something like this on Father's Day. Your, your father, say it to the children and the grandchildren. He's such a great leader. Look at how he flips those burgers. He's just awesome. Oh, he'll feel like he could conquer the world. You'll put an S super dad on his chest. It'll be awesome. But if you don't encourage his leadership and you challenge him at every turn, there's many guys I've talked to over the years and they gave up. This is fitting 
in the Lord. Husbands, verse 19, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. I'm going to say something very real. I think we all realize it. Men have a difficult time understanding ladies. Can I get a witness? Anybody out there? All right. Here's why. Just so you ladies know, you confuse us a little bit. And, and this is just wiring stuff, so don't get mad at me. <laughs> if you're going to send emails, Pastor John Nipper at livingtruthcorona.org. Is he in here? <laughs> See, you're emotional creatures, okay? And I'll just give you an insight into men. We don't always get your emotional stuff. We just don't. But a man who is growing in his faith and his love for his wife, the Greek word for love here is agapeo. It's not if you feel like it. It's you are called to love your wife. The parallel text is Ephesians 5. You're to love her as Christ, what? Loves the church. You don't have to get everything. You just need to love her. So if she needs to cry, just give her a shoulder. If she needs to vent, give her an ear. Because that is what you're called to do, gentlemen. That's what love is. Love is not easy. Love, love that is easy is not really love at all, is it? Jesus said, it's easy to love those who love you. That's what everybody does. But when you love people who are challenging and difficult, even maybe your spouse this morning, and, and I'm being serious, there's some marriages that are in trouble. I'm not painting with a broad brush, but I'm saying this. There's marriages in the Christian church that are in trouble. And they need healing. Husbands, love, agapeo, your wives. And notice verse 19, don't be embittered against them. Here's the Greek word here. It means don't be harsh with them. If you have an NIV, it says don't be harsh with them. Don't be embittered could be translated, stop being bitter or do not have the habit of being bitter. There's a story told about a pastor. This is not me, just so I can qualify the story. And he, he went home one day and his wife, he, he treated his wife very poorly and his wife said, if you would only treat me like those in the congregation, I'd feel a lot better about things. You're nice to everybody in the church, but the moment we go home, you're a rascal towards me. You're embittered against me. Well, we're called not to treat our wives harshly. One writer says, this speaks of a man who is domineering and harsh. Paul tells husbands not to call their wives honey and then act like vinegar. Oh, I love you, honey. I love you, honey. But then she feels like she's your doormat. That shouldn't be the case, Right? If we are going to be harsh with our wives, and sometimes men become impatient with women, I'm being real, because there's differences in emotional needs and communication. This is why we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, guys, so that we can love well. This is why, ladies, in order to submit to your husband, when he may frustrate you, you need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you submit to his leadership and he's loving you as Christ loved the church, there's a beautiful symmetry in marriage. But when one thing is lacking, when a husband's being harsh with his wife or a wife can't submit to his uh, leadership, 
It's not a good combination. D.L. Moody said, if I wanted to find out whether a man was a Christian, I wouldn't ask his pastor, I would ask his wife. If a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. What is the use of his talking about salvation for the next life if he has no salvation for this one? Close quote. I know, but Paul's bringing it home. Now, I ask that today be a family service because of verse 20, and all you parents will be grateful. Children, we don't want to leave you out. Children, be obedient to your parents. What's it say? In all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, everybody just turn over to Ephesians, which is just a few pages back. Ephesians 5. As we did the introduction to Colossians, we talked about how there's many parallels between Ephesians and Colossians. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, Ephesians 6, 2, which is the first commandment with a promise. It's from the Ten Commandments. That it may, may, may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we have a foundation that leads into family life in both Ephesians and Colossians that I want you to see. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell. Let the peace of Christ, let the word of Christ richly dwell. Then it goes into family relationships. Everybody remember that? Colossians 3, 15 and 16. Take a look at Ephesians 5, 18. It says this. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a waste. But be filled with the Spirit. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Colossians 3, 16. You might want to write that in your margin. Here it says, be filled with the Spirit. Notice the symmetry, the similarities. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, the husband is the head of the wife, as we talked about. Skip down to verse 25, husbands, love your wife. Wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then skip down to verse 33. Ephesians 5, 33. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. How many of you have heard of the book Love and Respect? Raise up your hand. Okay, just maybe about 20% of you. The book Love and Respect was written based upon Ephesians 5.33, and it says this. This is the essence of the book. It says that Ephesians 5.33 identifies the greatest needs of men and women. One of the greatest needs of a man is respect. Can I get a witness, brothers? One of the greatest needs of a woman, or the top need, I would say, is love. Patient love, security. It doesn't mean that a woman doesn't want respect. Of course she does. It doesn't mean that a man doesn't want love. Of course he does. But in terms of the major thrust of how we are wired, men long for respect and women long for love. And when we're able to give that, according to the biblical model, we're able to bless one another in marriage. You got married to bless the other one, didn't you? When you went to the altar, you didn't go up to the altar. Go back to Colossians 3 with the idea, you know what? I think I'm just going to make this person's life miserable for the next 50 years. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's not what you did. You went up to the altar with all the best intentions, right? To love, to honor, to cherish. I'm often the third party at these weddings. And the two who are getting married, oh, they're all goo goo gaga. They can't take their eyes off each other. I love They're whispering to each other. I love you. I love you. They want to kiss each other before the formal kiss. I'm like, stop it. You can't kiss until I say you can kiss. <laughs> and then something happens to us. What is it? Sometimes we get away from God's plan. We don't work on keeping the flame of romance strong. As to our children, children are to be obedient to their parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I suppose every generation says this, but I'll say it because I think we see it. There's a lot of disrespect, not a lot of maybe emphasis on respecting authority in our up-and-coming generation. And I'm talking about police officers and parents and pastors, right? There are positions that are worthy of respect. I just threw a pastor in there so you'd Give me an extra candy bar today. Anyway, look at verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Now, I'm going to address the dads in the room, and I want to tell you about the balance that the Bible calls you to. You are to raise your children. I have three boys at home. They're all older now. The youngest just turned 18, so... I have a little bit of mileage behind me to talk about this subject. So here's the thing. Your children need you to guide them. They may not always speak it. And a lot of your guidance is going to be by example. But some of it is going to be by your direct uh, guidance in terms of teaching. It was funny, we're somewhere yesterday and people have all these notions of what it means to have a father as a pastor. When my boys were in Little League and I was coaching Little League, some of the other players would find out what, my, what I did for a living and they would say something like this to my kids. Is your dad a priest or something? <laughs> What's that like? Do you have church services like every night in your living room? And so somebody said something yesterday. They, they were with my son for a day, and they, they were asking him questions like, what's it like to have a dad as a pastor? Does he preach to you like every half an hour? Does he? <laughs> no. No. Three times a day. That's pretty, pretty much. I'd roll the pulpit into the living room. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here for the sake of these little ankle biters. <laughs> who need to grow into godly men. Open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes as I pontificate on the spiritual ecclesiastical structure of a, I didn't do that. But I did do something. When we were at the dinner table, I would open my Bible to a passage. We'd read a little. And sometimes they were, he's touching me, he's touching me, he's touching me, he's touching me. And I wanted everything to go perfect in the family devotions. I would say, pay attention. I'm giving you the Greek definition of this word. And they'd be like, he touched me. He did it. 
Sometimes it was like a circus, and then I listened to some of these broadcasts from Family Life and Focus on the Family and everything. Look, in family devotions, it doesn't have to be perfect. They're catching more than you think. Don't ex- expect, you know, everything just to be quiet, and just, just do the best you can, and when you're all together, just give them one nugget of truth, you know. Don't give them the whole Bible, an aerial view of all 66 books. Okay, boys, we're starting in Genesis. The author is Moses. This was written in, just give them a nugget. And so I, I started to do this as a dad. I started to just try to start dropping nuggets of truth into their pocket. And I would use teachable moments in life, and I would just try to pour into them as best I could. I also wanted them to see my faith, and I had some other pastors warn me not to be too over the top because PKs, everybody know what that means? Pastors, kids, sometimes get resentful of the church or the ministry. And so I tried to keep a careful balance. We were in church, of course, all the time. But I tried to keep a careful balance with the way I didn't want them to become exasperated. When you're a PK and you're in Sunday school, all the other kids think you should know all the answers, right? Oh, you, oh, you didn't know that? That's the pastor of the church. No, they don't know everything. But I'll tell you what, my... Children have had a great experience growing up in the church. But there's things that you have to do that are intentional. Dads, don't exasperate your children. Look at verse 21. This is our final verse. Exasperate, I think, is self-evident, but here's the word. It means don't stir them up, provoke them, irritate them to anger. Don't make them feel like they can never please you. Because if they feel like they can never please you, please hear me well. At some point, your child will give up trying to please you. And they may make an internal decision. Some of you, this hits close to home because you can never please your parents. They will make an internal decision that since they can't please you, they're going to stop trying. And so this is where we need that balance of loving guidance The fear and admonition of the Lord, pouring into them, keeping them accountable, healthy discipline, explaining why we're doing what we're doing, and at the same time, encouragement. Here's the healthy balance. As much as you discipline, you should encourage. And if you have to find things to encourage them for, then find them. And usually what happens in households, because we're human, is we go one too far one way or too far the other way, right? We, don't, we, we may not be a great encourager or we may be too much on that side and we don't discipline our children. And then we see the little brat in the third aisle of the shopping you know, store and, and she's trying to negotiate with him on the floor. Or he is, okay, I'll give you the piece of candy. Just stop screaming. And people who are walking by are saying, spank that child. They start in a refrain. They start singing it together. Spank that child. Spank that child. I'm not talking about abusing the child, but I am saying, on occasion, I did apply the board of knowledge to the seed of understanding. (laughs) Amen? And then I would say something like this, and they would, I would hug them and say, now, do you know why you, I told you the boundary, I told you what was going to (laughs) happen. 
And, and I'd say, okay, let's pray together, but I told you not to do that. That's the balance that we have to have. Josh McDowell says, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. When you have a relationship with your child, I think it's obviously you can have these kinds of situations and talks. Don't exasperate your children because look at the end of the, the verse, and this is one of the things that we don't want to happen to anybody. We don't want anyone to lose heart. It's becoming less common these days for a teenager to have time isolated for focused interaction with their family members. This is from George Barna. Most of the time they spend with their family is what you might uh, call family end time. Family and TV, family and dinner, family and homework. The lives of each family member are usually so jam-packed that the opportunity to spend time together doing unique activities, talking about life, visiting special places, playing games, sharing spiritual explorations, has to be scheduled in advance, and few do so. Beloved author and professor Dr. Howard Hendricks once asked his grown children what they remembered the most fondly from their childhood. Listen to this. Was it vacations they took, the trips to theme parks or the zoo? No, they answered. It was when dad got on the floor and wrestled with them. That's the way children think. It is especially the way boys think. The most meaningful activities in the family are often those simple interactions that build lasting connections between generations, close quote. You know, they've done surveys and they've said the, the families that are the healthiest and doing the best are families that spend a little time together talking about uh, life stuff. They have dinner together. Things that used to be assumed, they turn off devices when they're trying to have a conversation. If you read the surveys lately and you read the top five things that make a healthy family, you'd look at it if you're my age and you'd say, duh. But it's not duh anymore. It's something that we've got to do. Unfortunately, we live in a society where nearly half of all children are likely to experience parental divorce and family breakup. Thus, this becomes a defining and painful event of American childhood itself. An off-quote survey says that fathers spend an average of 30 second, 37 seconds a day with their children. Can I say that again? An oft-quoted survey says the average father spends 37 seconds a day with their children. Wow. How can you make an investment in 37 seconds? What can you get done in that time? And so we need this great balance. The word parent means we take care of, and kids need our physical touch. They need us to pour into them. This is from German writer Zuckmeyer. He says, If one has lived in America and seen in countless cases what injustice is done to children, one has had enough of it. One sees too much that someone hidden behind misunderstood psychoanalytical maxims allows them to become little tyrants and ill-humored despots or dictators whom adults crawl in front of for pure convenience only to get peace. And one sees how this takes effect in the unfortunate adolescence when they are brought up without authority and confronted with the difficulties of life. I'll say this because I'm watching it happen. I'm seeing it on university campuses right now. It's a different world out there, folks. And that world is that in many ways we have tried to appease a generation 
that's becoming softer and softer. I heard somebody say, what do you think the, the greatest generation would say of our current generation right now? The greatest generation that had to fight wars for our freedom. What do you think their assessment of our current generation would be? Those are some hard questions to think about. And so that's why we need to say, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Sometimes it feels like this world's gone crazy. Grandpa, take me back to yesterday when the line between right and wrong didn't seem so hazy. Did lovers really fall in love to stay? Stand beside each other, come what may. A promise really something people kept, not something that they would say and forget. Did families really bow their heads to pray? Daddies really never go away. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Father, I pray that we can recapture those. You know, sometimes when we say the good old days, it seems like the good old days maybe, you know, (laughs) maybe they weren't so good, but maybe they were. Lord, I know this is a group of people this morning that's come here on this Father's Day because I believe they want to be what you've called them to be. That's what I want to be, Lord. And I think on behalf of all of us, I would just ask for your forgiveness in areas where we have fallen short, Lord. I would ask for your forgiveness and repent of areas where I have fallen short. As a parent, as a husband, as a man of God, We need revival in our nation, Lord. And you said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Father, we need your healing desperately, but we know it starts with us turning to you fully. And Lord, we know that you are gracious when we fall short. And this room is filled with a bunch of people who have made Many mistakes, many sins. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace that covers us day in and day out, moment by moment. But Lord, in areas where we need to get it right and we've been walking away, we, we have known it in the weeks and months behind us. We have felt your hand upon us saying, don't keep entertaining that. Don't keep going there. And we've ignored you or played games, Lord, would you cleanse us of that? Would you forgive us? Would this Father's Day of 2017, Lord, be a marker of a new change, a new direction for those who need it? And for you, if you're not a Christian with your head and heart bowed, this could be a new moment, a new change, a new direction for you, but you must be born again to that living hope. Cry out to Jesus. Say, Jesus, save me. I've failed. Forgive me of my sin. I repent of it. Pray it if it's you. I want to know you. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please give me a new heart, a new start, a new path. Cry out to him and he'll save you on the spot. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll give you a new beginning. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe you've been a prodigal. Maybe you just want to say, Lord, this morning I just want to tighten things up in my walk in life and be the man you've called me to be, the woman you've called me to be, the child you've called me to be. Father, I just pray that your grace would be showering the wonderful Christian people who are here this morning. Bless them, encourage them, strengthen them, and let your word richly dwell in us this week. Let your peace rule in us this week as we walk out what you've put into us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.